you're listening to the May edition of Sounds Jewish. I'm Jason Solomon. And on this month's podcast, the staging of a new play responding to Carol Churchill's seven Jewish children. Pro-Israel lobby groups in Washington breaking the hold of the strong and sometimes feared APAC. And hallelujah, it's Eurovision time again with a Jewish-Arab double act as Israel's entry. Why has it angered both left and right? This is Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. Shalom, shalom. Joining me in the Multimedia Guardian pod is theatre critic John Nathan. Welcome to you. Hello. And Israeli journalist and contributor to The Guardian's Comment is Free, Daphna Baram. Welcome to both of you, Daphna. Uh, Eurovision, does that excite you as an Israeli, as a past champion? It brings old memories of staying up all night, waiting for the results, of everybody saying that everybody's anti-Semitic except from the Dutch, who always gives us du poids. Yeah, <laughs> very exciting times. Uh, and John, uh, you're, not, you're not wearing anything glamorous for us for Eurovision uh, today? No, I didn't. Does it excite uh, you? Our family attitude tended to be, without being too superior, the same as Terry Wogan's, which I think is we only watched it if we were paid. So we don't have particular memories of uh, Eurovision to draw on. Come on, Buck's fears when but Cheryl Baker pulled us. I was Come watching on. secretly. That's yeah, true. Exactly. Uh, we'll talk. To, we'll return to Eurovision uh, a bit later uh, because uh, we're going to discuss first uh, one of the most discussed cultural events of 2009 already. It's Carol Churchill's play Seven Jewish Children, which she wrote as a reaction to the conflict in Gaza. It was staged at the Royal Court Theatre here in London. It's a 10-minute play in which Jewish parents seek to explain the last century of Jewish history to an unseen Jewish child. Here's a brief clip taken from an adapted version posted up on the Guardian website a few days ago. Tell her it's the fog of war. Tell her we won't stop killing them till we're safe. Tell her I laughed when I saw the dead policemen. Tell her they're animals living in rubble now. Tell her I wouldn't care if we wiped them out. The world would hate us is the only thing. Tell her I don't care if the world hates us. Tell her we're better haters. Tell her we're chosen people. Tell her I look at one of their children covered in blood and what do I feel? Tell her all I feel is happy, it's not her. Jenny Stoller there performing Carol Churchill's Seven Jewish Children. The play was met with plaudits from some and fury from others, claiming it to be simplistic, even anti-Semitic. Now, playwright Richard Sterling, who himself is not Jewish, was one of those angered by the piece, and he has set about writing his own short play, a response to Carol Churchill's original, and it will be performed at the New End Theatre in Hampstead this month. Uh, Richard, your, your play's called Seven Other Children. Uh, what did you mean by that? Because rather than a direct response would be, say, Seven Palestinian Children. It's a very good question, and it goes to the heart of why I wrote the play in the first place, because I did have a problem with Carol Churchill's calling it seven Jewish children rather than seven Israeli children. And I think there's a, there's a blurring there that is uh, at best incautious. And I thought that I wanted to make my piece about miseducation, bad education on the other side, as well as indeed uh, on all sides. I genuinely hope I'm not saying tit for tat. Uh, the, my premise is that I believe uh, some of the tragedy of the Palestinian situation is the distorted education handed down to younger generations of children based not just on political events, but on old prejudices. Ask him if he's proud to be a fighter, proud to be a man. Ask him about the old people's home. Ask him to recite their names if he wants to be the only one who doesn't shout their names. Ask him whose fault it is they're dead. Ask him if they ever had a right to live here, ever had a right to live. 
Ask him if he doesn't see they've always played the victim, glad to do so now, a self-fulfilling prophecy, a chosen people asking him for death. Ask him if he's sorry for them. Don't ask him to feel sorry for them. Ask him not to feel sorry for them, not to feel anything for them. Richard, thank you for that performance. Now you've decompressed uh, there. Always lovely to see a bit of drama in the Sounds Jewish studio. Uh, can you just tell us sort of where that comes in your play and what the, what the, the premise was of that, that particular monologue? Certainly. That comes in the last of the seven short scenes of my play, which uh, follows the shape, the length, eight to ten minutes, and the vernacular of the Carol Churchill piece, which I saw in February. Um, I was concerned in February seeing it that uh, what Carol Churchill, whose writing I generally much admire, uh, seemed to be doing was conflating criticism of Israeli governmental policy, for which I should add I'm no apologist, with uh, comments about Israelis and Jews in general. I'm not sure I uh, go along with the connection that she draws between in the first scene of her play showing the Jews as victims of Nazi uh, uh, atrocity and the final scene suggesting that they are the modern-day counterpart to that in the Middle East. So you, you're objecting to, to the politics within the piece, the style of the piece, or the, 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 the venue of the piece, the fact that it was at the Royal Court, a, a place of, I suppose, great import in, in, in British theatre and in the history of British theatre. I think my problem was that the theatre put it on uh, as um, at their own expense for the playwright to benefit a charity of her choosing and in lasting only eight minutes I don't think it could really add to anyone's understanding I think it was a polemic and that's why my piece I'm not saying is a piece in its own right I make that very clear it is a theatrical response because I felt one was merited all I can say is that the theatre did say that they found the play to be precise and challenging, and I don't like lazy stereotypes, but if you will allow me to suggest one to you, I was sitting in an audience at the Royal Court that was a very archetypal, stereotypical Royal Court audience, and I was looking round them and thinking, I don't think these people are being challenged. I think they've come to have their mindset confirmed, and that worried me. I think it's, it's a good time to now bring in uh, John Nathan, who uh, uh, our theatre critic, who went to see the, the Carol Churchill play. Now, John, in your review in the Jewish Chronicle, which I read, you wrote uh, very movingly at the end, for the first time in my career as a critic, I move to say about a work at a major production house that this is an anti-Semitic play. Um, that's a very strong emotion to have experienced, to actually have bolt, bolt up right in your seat and said, you know what, this is actually, this is wrong in a way. Um, well, it was a very difficult review to write for that reason. Um, there are plays which are, which I've seen, which are contentious and which touch on uh, politics and ethnicity. And this did so in a way that I found very difficult to ignore the conclusions which I was invited to come to. I mean, essentially, what Carol Churchill has done is identify a country not by its name, not by its policies, um, but almost solely, in fact, specifically by its ethnicity. And it's very clear that what we're talking about, or being, um, being what's being portrayed here, is not the acts of uh, the Israeli government, but the opinions and the attitudes of Jews. 
Uh, so you're you're saying that she because she's called it seven Jewish children that yeah. she's equa- equated Jews with with Israel, whereas in fact the the truth is that Israel is a multicultural uh, yeah. state. Is that what you're saying? Well, yeah. I mean, it's very hard to. There are all analogies uh, tend to be imperfect in in this subject. But if, for instance, a playwright was going to uh, write a play about Zimbabwe, critical of Zimbabwe and they called the play uh, Seven Black Children, you would be forgiven for wondering what the play was about and uh, who the playwright was writing about. So I think it invites Jews to be defensive. Uh, Daphna Baram, if I could bring you in uh, here now. You've seen the play, on, as, as I have, on the Guardian website. Now, I've read the reviews of it myself when it came out in the, in the theatre. and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a play that forces you to, to listen and take, uh, take note of what's being said. Does it force you into a, an ugly corner as a piece of art or an ugly corner as a piece of politics? I didn't feel that way. I actually read John's review before I've seen it. Um, I must say that Jewish friends always tell me that Israelis don't understand anything about anti-Semitism and don't recognize it when they see it. But um, I think it is, I'm sorry to say, quite far-fetched to call this by anti-Semitic. I do not think it is anti-Semitic. I do think that any Gentile uh, playwright is taking a bit of a risk when representing to, uh, when purporting to represent a voice, uh, not their own, but I don't think it's an illegitimate thing. I do also have a problem with the tying of Jews with Israel. I can understand if this is the point uh, from which people resent it, I can see why they do so. But the narrative that is represented there, that it is all the same and ever since the Holocaust and everybody's always out to get us and we have to tell our children not to be afraid and we have to tell our children so and so, this narrative exists and um, it has a right... uh, well, to be voiced, and it has a right to be uh, criticised. Do you not think, uh, John, that, that Carol Churchill kind of plays on the, the anti-Semitic myths of blood libel, for example, with the, the, the notion that, that the chosen people, for example, I, or, or, or are we so, so kind of sensitive to hearing any mentions of these things that we take them? As you say, I think that, that things are very different for a, a, an Israeli and, uh, and, a, and an Anglo-Jew. Yeah, I think, I think they are. I mean, I think there's another context here, which is that there is a a view espoused by, say, Nicholas Heitner of the National Theatre. And I've spoken to him about this subject in relation to the possibility of staging a play about Muslims. And and it was in the aftermath of Mike Lee's Jewish play, 2000 Years, and I said, are we going to see a, a Muslim play? And he said that he would be very wary of staging a play that was populated entirely, I'm paraphrasing him, but populated entirely by a community which wasn't written by a member of that community. Mm. And one of the problems here is that Carol Churchill has presumed to represent the views of a community and without being a member of that community, and it's bound to make people ask if that's a fair insight that she's providing. I'm We've not just spoken about a play that we both have seen last year, um, Ice Cream on the Gaza Beach, yes. a play that was written by a Jewish woman yes. in which many of the speaking voices that were represented in the play were of Gazans, of people from Gaza, right. and words have been put in their mouth. I don't think any of us or any of the Palestinian people who were with me watching this play thought that this was a racist play. Shelley Silas, when she wrote Eating Ice Cream on Gaza Beach, this was not a play which... Uh, was populated by one community and one group. Seven Jewish children is. We Israelis are used to 
call spade spade and speak in very harsh words, be very aggressive in the way we debate and um, not feel endangered for it somehow. One of the joys of playwriting is that you can be biased and I wouldn't want my opinion of Carol Churchill's play to be interpreted as me being against a play that is biased. I think um, there is, all political playwrights have a right to be biased. There have been previous Royal Court productions like My Name is Rachel Curry, which I defended, um, which uh, a lot of people um, attacked for potentially being too pro-Palestinian. Uh, bias isn't a problem in playwriting, but... All I'm arguing for is that communities are treated in the same way by theatres. I'd love to see the poster which sort of said, thrilling, the Daily Telegraph, <laughs> outstanding, the Evening Standard, anti-Semitic, John Nathan, Jewish Chronicle. Yeah. Put that on the poster, let's see how we get I don't get think on. that's going to pack them in. Well, maybe it will. <laughs> we see, then she'd be excited. <laughs> To Washington now, where there's much speculation about what exactly the Obama administration has in mind for the Middle East. For several months, everything seemed to be on hold as the White House waited for a new government to take office in Israel. That's now happened with Benjamin Netanyahu at the helm. So what can we expect from President Obama? Some say not much, suggesting that his room for manoeuvre is severely limited by the influence of APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, commonly referred to, especially by its enemies, as the Israel Lobby. According to these critics, APAC enforces a hard-line, pro-Likud, that's right-wing stance, from America's politicians and will not tolerate anything less. Enter... J Street, a new group challenging APAC's monopoly. It says it's pro-Israel, pro-peace. And joining me on the line from Washington is a member of J Street's advisory board, Daniel Levy. Welcome to Sounds Jewish. Uh, Daniel, why was J Street set up in the first place? J Street was created to be the political arm of the pro-Israel, pro-peace movement in the United States and in particular, although not exclusively, in the American Jewish community. What J Street was trying to create was also a space where progressive American Jews who don't want to throw the baby out with water, who don't want to lose the attachment either to the Jewish community or to Israel, who care about Israel, was to create a political and a campaigning and a values space where they could say, you're not going to tell us, you the neoconservatives, you the right wing, you the Christian evangelical so-called Zionists, you're not going to tell us how we can be pro-Israel. There are already existing groups, the Israel Policy Forum, Americans for Peace Now, I won't bore people with the alphabet soup, uh, <laughs> who do educational work around why it's in America's interest, it's in Israel's interest, it's in the region's interest to see a resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian-Israeli-Arab conflict along the lines of two states, close to 67, etc. What J Street came along and said is this movement needs a political arm. And by a political arm, that meant creating two kinds of legal entities. One of those legal entities is a lobby, which specifically targets public elected officials in the United States to advocate for the kinds of policy positions that J Street believes in and that's engagement, 
that's American leadership in achieving a peace solution, that's actually getting two states in a reasonable, respectful, dignified, viable two-state solution done, not just talking about it. Daniel, surely everyone, everyone wants peace, everyone wants two-state solution. Is that not a a given? What what more can J Street add to that? It's all well and good saying you're for two states, but if you're not actually willing to stand up and be counted when it comes to an issue like settlement then your support for two states is, is, is a little unserious. And J Street is saying that, that Israel probably needs clarity in the American position on settlements in order to take the moves that Israel's paper is committed to but hasn't taken, as a for instance. If your approach is, at the end of the day, there'll be two states, but let's create an obstacle course so that day never comes then I don't think you're doing any favours to to Israel and I don't think you're serious about being a supporter of two states. Daniel Levy on the line from Washington. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And joining me on the line from Brussels is Emmanuel Ottolenghi of the Transatlantic Institute. J Street, what what do they represent to you? What what does the coming of of them mean? Is there a, a third way? Look, I mean, let, let's let's uh, make some clarity in the in the horizon of Jewish organizations advocating uh, in America. Uh, it's much broader than just APAC uh, on the one hand and J Street on the other. Um, the uh, the addition of J Street is just one more voice uh, um, uh, representing another view, uh, one that was, in my view, not underrepresented before. Indeed, well, one of our hardline journalists here in the UK, Melanie Phillips, whose whose work I'm sure you're aware of, uh, seems to think that J Street's soft attitudes uh, represent that kind of the, a crumbling of, of resistance, that they're that they're bad news. Do you see it that way, Emmanuel? I don't know if they're bad news. I mean, I personally do not agree with some of the stances or the views that they represent. But uh, I think that, uh, you know, whenever somebody rises up to challenge your views, uh, you have to have an argument. What, what is it specifically about J Street that, 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 that falls against your, uh, your particular views? The argument within the pro-Israel um, um, activists uh, and organizations in America, and, and perhaps that is the argument which is to be had with J Street, is... Uh, uh, how committed uh, and how reliable is the Palestinian partner uh, that Israel has in the quest for um, a viable two-state solution that can address and meet the needs and the concerns and the aspirations of both people. I think that that is a legitimate argument to be had, but it's not one where J Street supports the two-state solution and everybody else somehow opposes it. Emmanuel Ottolenghi from Brussels of the Transatlantic Institute, uh, thank you very much in, indeed. It was a pleasure. And on the subject of what is the right attitude for diaspora Jews to take toward Israel, you might be interested in going along to the JCC's Opinion Soup event in London. In a stellar panel lineup, including Guardian columnist Jonathan Frieden, scholar Jacqueline Rose and anti-Semitism expert David Hirsch, they'll be asking, can people speak about Israel freely, even when that means voicing harsh criticism, or is it their responsibility to express constant support. That's all happening on Monday the 18th of May at the Hampstead Town Hall. See the Sounds Jewish website for more details. You're listening to Sounds Jewish from The Guardian. I'm Jason Solomons and still in the studio with me are my guests, journalist Daphna Baram and theatre critic John Nathan. We're going to all cast our minds back to the heady days of the late 70s, proper summers, space dust, 
perms. And when a bonnie bee, a bonnie bar was storming the charts, oh, it feels like an age away when Israeli music, or even Israel itself, was being celebrated on the world stage at the kitsch fest that is the Eurovision Song Contest. And then, hallelujah, if Israel didn't go and win again the very next year with the Together Now. And it was, of course, Dana International, the transsexual who in 1998 dazzled the judges with diva. But it's all been a bit quiet since then. And somehow, with Israel regarded as whatever at the moment, it doesn't feel like it's going to be Israel's year. But is their recent losing streak about to change with their newest entry? There Must Be Another Way, by the acclaimed Jewish-Israeli singer Achinoam Nini, or Noah, as she's better known, and the Palestinian-Israeli musician and actress Mira Awad. Musician Lemez Lovaz tracked down Mira Awad backstage at a pre-Eurovision event in Tel Aviv before Mira flies off to Moscow for the semi-finals on the 12th of May. It's nerve-wrecking stuff. Mira, do you feel that going to Moscow as the first Israeli Arab singer to represent Israel makes you some kind of spokesperson for the Israeli Arab or Israeli Palestinian community? I'm not a spokesperson for the Arab Israeli community. I'm a spokesperson, first of all, for myself, second of all, for everyone who wants me to be their spokesperson. Let's uh, give this example of One Voice here, with the movement that we're, that we're members of. They want me, they have chosen me to, and Achinoam to be the spokeswoman, and so we're happily there and we're happily doing that task of, of speaking for them uh, with that moderate voice, with that voice that is still looking for the dialogue, for the, for the open window to reach out and, and touch the other side. Um, so I speak for everyone who wants me to speak for them. I do not uh, p- um, uh, crown myself as anyone's uh, spokeswoman. The song that you're taking to Eurovision is most definitely a political one. There must be another way. Um, but there are many people who say that the Eurovision Song Contest is not a place for politics. I wanted to ask, how do you feel about being seen as a political artist? Is that something that you're comfortable with? I'm 34, and I think for some years in my career, I tried to uh, to get away of the political agenda and and act as if I'm just you know musician waking up in the morning wanting to write songs. This is actually what I want to do: wake up in the morning and write songs and perform all all every night and in different places and you know meet my audience or whatever. This is the dream. But uh, I think uh, years pass and you understand that um, that you cannot. Um, it turn your back to what you are and where you come from and the task that apparently is unseen task that somebody has put on your back but um, but it's it's a blessing actually because if I can if I can say something that will resonate somewhere with someone um, then I've done I've done something I am an Israeli citizen I have a lot of friends who are Jewish who are Israelis they are not my enemy uh, they love me, there are people who love me, there are people who I love and care for a lot and would give my life for them who are Israeli and Jewish and therefore it opens uh, your eyes when you realize that the human connection 
is first of all, and then comes all the thing, all this thing of nationality, religion, whatever. I think it's no secret to say that there's been a fair bit of criticism with regards to your participation in the Eurovision Song Contest representing Israel. I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about the problems that you might have had from the left and the right in both Israeli and Palestinian society and specifically with reference to the timing of the announcement, which, as I understand, was just after the Gaza war. You talked about the Gaza war. That was a very painful time uh, for everyone. Me and also Achinoam, we were uh, attached to our TVs, we were glued to our internet, trying to take in all this in- horrible information and, this, uh, and these horrible pictures of what was going on in Gaza. And then the announcement came that we're going to be singing in Eurovision. We were very far from the mode of singing and writing songs. Um, but eventually, I have to say that this friendship between me and Achinam uh, was the reason that made me decide to go forth and, and, and stick to the plan of going to the Eurovision because this friendship is real. It, it was not created for the purpose of the, of the Eurovision and it was not created for any other purpose than any other purpose than just this friendship and this collaboration between two people who are musicians and women and uh, friends. We are lucky for having this uh, relationship period. It's, uh, of course, it's very unique and uh, we're very lucky to have it. They're talking to Mirad Awad, who's half of the Israeli entry. There must be another way into the Eurovision Song Contest this year. Daphna, does it bring back memories for you, this uh, this the fact that Israel has actually got a song that might just win this year? It's the first time I hear it might just win, I must say, uh, but... Um I'm hoping it will be successful. Yeah, it brings memories of the late 70s when we were all looking forward to win over and over again after Abani B won, and then Hallelujah the next year. What did that do for Israel? I mean, that did put it on the map, didn't it? And well, at the time, there was a feeling that two things are putting us on the map, the winning the Eurovision contest and uh, winning the um, European Cup in basketball, which Maccabi Tel Aviv was doing repeatedly in this, exactly the same years. So basically, the streets in Israel were empty uh, every Thursday when there was a European Cup basketball contest and every time the Eurovision was on it nobody was allowed out everybody was in front of the television in black and white uh, so uh, that did, did a lot for Israeli identity at the time do you, do you think at the time it was highly important every kind of representation in any international forum was considered to be highly important uh, the following years after these uh, winnings which we uh, came to take for granted every time we send a rubbish song or a song that was not very successful um, after we didn't come to the first place or actually came only to the fourth or the 13th or the 26th place it would be um, questions time in in, um, in the parliament in the Knesset and uh, the Minister of Education would have to answer why we didn't win same with football by the way it was this, this ambition this feeling that this thing would somehow fulfill our national ambitions was stronger in the 70s I think than it is now now people are much more cynical uh, John Nathan I wonder if uh, you, you mentioned at the top of the show that Eurovision never meant that much it to you it wasn't really my thing I've had to have a look at the uh, YouTube version of the of the um, 
Oh Bunny B. And uh, I found it hard to get past uh, the Yiddish. I don't know if you've seen this. There's a dubbed Yiddish version of the Beatles singing A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> and it's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And uh, <laughs> I just hope that somebody enters that. The song is very hopeful about it. an Israeli and an Arab singing together. There must be another way. Do you not think, well, people will say, wow, well, that's very, that's amazing. There are Jews and Arabs. They, they, get, they get on it. I can't believe it. You know, I think politics is, is that simple abroad in Europe. They think, well, the Jews and Arabs can't even talk to each other. Here they are, two attractive ladies singing together live on stage. Naturally, this whole uh, hand-holding thing is very popular uh, in Europe, but I think it's not as popular and it doesn't sell as well as it used to. It's not enough. Some people on the left um, and um, quite a lot of uh, Israeli, uh, quite a lot of Palestinians of Israeli uh, citizenship were feeling... Um, that it was wrong uh, for um, a, a Palestinian Israeli and for a couple of singers, uh, Israeli and Palestinian, to service this this kind of imagery of the, the fantastic peace between um, Israelis and Palestinians and uh, of the fact that uh, a Palestinian who is of Israeli citizenship can even represent Israel in such a contest um, in a situation where Palestinians do not enjoy uh, full uh, rights in Israel. The real trick would be if we found out that they were both transsexuals at the end of it. That would be like the, 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 the summa, the apogee of Israeli achievement. Oh, yeah, but we're trying to do them one by one. So we do transgender first and then we do Israeli Arab and then we do, we did two Yemenites. So, hey. Right, so there's, yeah. there's much to expect Three from Israel in the, in, the, in the Eurovision Song Contest in future. It is all we have time for in this month's Sounds Jewish. My thanks to my guests, Daphna Baram and to John Nathan. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, the Jewish Community Centre for London. To polish off this month's podcast, we'll play out with a track from the new album, Travelling the Face of the Globe, from Klezmer Fusion London band Oi Vavoy. This is I Know What You Are. From me, Jason Solomons, and my producer, Sarah Peters, it's goodbye. Sun rising now.